live in an age that is plagued with what author Mark Devers calls commitment phobia. Commitment phobia is the fear of promising or committing to do something good, but we fear that we're going to miss out on something better. So rather than going with the good that is right there in front of us, we end up not doing anything because we want to keep our options open. It, it's the way it is in big decisions in our lives. People are hesitant. They're getting married later and later. They're uh, struggling to decide to have children, pick a career, pick a major in college. But it's also with the little things as well, like choosing a movie or which Halloween party we're going to go to tonight. And so because there are good options, we struggle to choose an option. Why is that? We don't want to commit because we know that when we say yes to one thing, that necessarily means that we're saying no to everything else. Now, let me ask you a question. Is there any area in life where that's not true? Where if you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to everything else? No. That's the principle of commitment. But let me tell you, there is one group of people in the world who are trying to make that work. Who are trying to say, you know what, I can say yes to this, but I can also keep my options open. This might surprise you, but that group of people is us. It's the Christians. Listen to this statistic that the Barna Group uncovered. In, in surveys across the U.S., only 43% of adults who claim to be Christians say they are absolutely committed to the Christian faith. Okay, did you hear that? 43% of Christians say they are absolutely committed to the Christian faith. In other words, 57% of us are keeping our options open. Now, I, I want you to think about that. Can you even be a Christian if you're keeping your options open? Didn't Jesus say, hey, no one can serve two masters? Didn't he say that we must take up our crosses and follow him. What, what could be more option eliminating than dying to self and taking up your cross and following Jesus? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. We don't get to have other options. If you make a commitment to Christ, you die to self, you die to self for the one who died for you. Commitment required. In this series, we've covered exactly what it means to follow Jesus. We understand that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man, no woman, no child comes to the Father, has eternal life, but through Jesus. 
there is no question that there are some things that we must believe as Christians, and therefore there are some other things that we can't believe. Because they contradict. And what the Scripture calls ones, those are the one things that we must embrace. There's the one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. There are some ones, there are some things that we have to cling to. There are some truths that we submit to only. So, I think we've concluded that keeping our options open is incompatible with Orthodox Christianity and the commitment required. There is a commitment required to living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so commitment phobia can't be the reality of a growing, devoted follower of Jesus. Yet, yet, there is one part of God's plan for our maturation where we hold out hope that we can find some other options. Where we believe that all-in commitment is really not required. It's one area in the faith that has been ravaged by commitment phobia. And one of the critical elements of the faith is to understand who we are in Christ. Not who you are and not who I am. We know that as individuals we are children of the King. Children of God adopted into his family by his grace through our faith. That's who we are as individuals. But there is an area that we need to understand who we are in community. Collectively. Who did God call us to be? We are the church of the living God. Not one of us, but all of us. We are the church. And the implications of that are especially important today because of this growing fear of commitment. You need to understand that if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're part of the family of God. No options. It's who we are. Let me just point out that even before COVID, and by the way, what happened in COVID? In COVID, much of the life of the church disbanded, right? We, We began to meet virtually, And literally and figuratively, we distanced. But even before that happened, the commitment to the body of Christ and body life was diminishing rapidly. There was already a commitment problem. Before COVID, a growing number of people were attending churches like they were eating at a buffet. Just pick one, pick something that fills my need today. I've known people that told me they go to one church to serve, one church for small groups, and one church for worship. I was actually asked one time by someone who wanted to serve our ministries here if they could serve on the team and go to a different church. Really? 
tells us where we are. Where our world with this commitment phobia says we can go. And that is a commitment problem. Make no mistake about it, that is a commitment problem. But, but let me tell you, maybe some of it's on us. Maybe some of it's on me. Because the truth is, that commitment problem is rooted in a fundamental misunderstanding about what the church is and what the church is supposed to be about. And, and now, let's mix COVID in. And what I fear is happening is that there's a growing number of people who have figured out that they can just do the online buffet without all the hassle. And most ecclesiastical prognosticators are saying 25% or more are never coming back. Now, let me just say this, if you're online watching, we are so grateful that you are online watching. All right, We are grateful that we figured out a way to make this happen. But, but you do need to understand this. It is a portal. You see what's going on, and at some point, you choose not to be the Wizard of Oz. You come out from behind the curtain, and you join the group. You become a part of a church family. We were in Oklahoma a couple of weeks ago for a funeral of one of my mentors, and uh, we planted a church in Oklahoma, so there were lots of people there and from the church we planted. It was just a great time. And I actually had a conversation with a man that used to be a staff member of ours and a seminary graduate and everything. And so I was visiting with him, and I said, well, tell me where you're going to church now. And he said, oh, we attend Parkside Church in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. We were in, and they lived in Lawton, Oklahoma. And so I'm a little foggy as to what happened after he revealed that, but I, I, I think, I'm not sure, but I, I think I said, that sounds like a long commute. And I did, the, I, I did the map thing, Lawton to Chagrin Falls, 17 hours and 6 minutes with the tolls, 18 hours and 31 minutes without them. That's a long commute. Guess what? They don't attend that church. There's checking in. He spent the next 20 minutes talking to me, but trying to convince himself that what he was doing was right. But it didn't work. Because he knew, and I knew, and you know, it can't work. That's not the way it works. Due to commitment phobia and the easy access to any church anywhere, just Google it, it is essential that we come back to the book and get an understanding of God's vision for the church and it is essential that we get on board with it. It is essential. So what must we believe about the church? Essentially this. Jesus said, I will build my church. I just want you to think about the import of that statement. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, 
I will build my church. And it is unquestionably the responsibility of every follower of Christ to take up their cross and commit to following him in the mission of building his church. Now listen, just like some easy stuff here. You can watch and not build. You can attend without building. But you can't build without attending. You can't. You know how I know that? Because Jesus showed up to build his church. Stepped out of eternity and into time. Put a suit of skin on. That's the incarnation. He was fully God, fully man. Come here to seek and save the lost and build his church. He came to build his church. And so, if we're going to be a part of that mission, we have to show up to build his church. But what's the church? Is it, is it this? What's the church? Well, the Greek word for church in the New Testament is the word ekklesia. This is the word, by the way, from which we get our word ecclesiastical. Okay, and ecclesiastical is all things church. I looked it up on dictionary.com and it said churchy. Churchy, all right? What we need to understand about that word ecclesia is that at its root, it means called out. Not like I'm calling you out for not showing up. Not like that. It's called out. It's called out by God. Called out by God. The church is the group of people who have been called out by God's Holy Spirit to place their faith in Jesus Christ and do what Jesus would do if he were in our place. But we're called out for what? Well, the writers of Scripture, when they used that word ecclesia, they were referring to the assembly of the called out. So, we are called out to be an assembly. You know what I've never been to? A school assembly where no students showed up. Because that wouldn't be an assembly, it would be a gym. An empty gym or an empty auditorium. People show up in assemblies. Now what is an assembly? Here's the definition. An assembly is a group of people coming together for a particular purpose. It's a group of people coming together for a purpose. We can't be an assembly if we don't have a purpose and if we don't assemble. You can't be a part of an assembly and not be there. So think about it, called out ones. The church 
has been called out of the darkness and assembles in the light. We are called out of apathy and we assemble for a purpose. We are called out of isolation and we assemble as a family. We're the called out ones to assemble. I want you to listen to this list drawn right from Scripture that spells out the myriad of reasons for which God called us out and expects us to assemble in celebration on purpose. In Romans chapter 1, we are called to belong to Christ. We are called out to be holy. In Romans chapter 8, we are called according to his purpose. In 1 Corinthians 1, we are called into fellowship with his son and called to assemble as the saints. In Galatians 5, we are called to freedom. In Ephesians 1, we are called out to peace. In Ephesians 4, we are called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, we are called to eternal life. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, God called us out to assemble for his own glory and excellence. On and on and on I could go. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, Paul, writing to the called out ones that gathered in assembly in Colossae, commanded them to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called out to peace. That's the word. Called to peace. And by the way, be thankful for that. It's a privilege. That verse is really the heart of the matter. Since we are members of one body, the body of Christ, we are called out to assemble together and act in unison according to God's mission, which is to make a difference, which is to let our light shine in the darkness. These these callings that I read through are not for us as individuals. They're for us as a body of believers. Members of God's household, we are called out as the body of Christ to work together to present Christ and the truth of Christ back to the world we have been called out of. Do you all understand that? We're called out, trained, discipled, collectively, to go back in. See, that's why Jesus said that he, he wants us to be in the world, but not of the world. We, we can't do our jobs as the body of Christ if we're not in the world. We also can't do our jobs as the body of Christ if we are of the world. So we are the called out ones. We're called out, but not away, to work with Christ to build his church. Now, here's what the scripture tells us about the building of the church, about what Christ was constructing. He was the chief cornerstone of the church, And we are 
what? What are we? What part of the building are we? Now, this answer may surprise you. I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy. It's about four-fifths of the way to the back of your Bible. Uh, 1 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul, who was a great church planter. And he actually wrote this book to his protege, Timothy, who was the pastor of a local church in a city called Ephesus. Okay, And so Paul is actually writing to Timothy to pass on his knowledge, his expertise, and his experience so that Timothy and the leaders of that church will lead the assembly to fulfill its mission in building the church. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we find out what part of the building we are. Now pay close attention because it's going to surprise you. Verse 14, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So Paul, like Timothy... Look, I'm hoping to get down there and see you kids, but I'm, I'm, I'm so swamped. Here's what, here's what I've planted. I'm just going to write you a note. I'm going to give you some instructions to help you understand how you guys as a church are supposed to function so that you can take your part, do your part, as the pillar and foundation of truth. There's a way that we conduct ourselves collectively to do our part. It requires understanding who we are. So who are we? As a result of their faith, Paul said, they are members of God's household. We are children of God. We are the children of God. I'll go red. What do we know as members? We know that membership has its privileges. As children of God, we are heirs of the kingdom of God. It's hope, it's eternal life, it's meaning, it's purpose. We are heirs of God's kingdom. But we also know that membership not only has its privileges, but it also has its responsibilities. As members of God's household, we are called to live up to the family name. To walk worthy of the calling by which we have been called. So what does that mean? Paul sums it up in verse 15 with these words. He says, God's household is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. To me, that's startling. Because that's a heavy responsibility. What, what is the foundation of truth? And is it the foundation of all truth? The foundation of truth, listen, is the church of the living God. The foundation of the truth is all those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. It's you and me, certainly as individuals, but it's us as a community. 
And you say, well, that, that kind of sounds blasphemous because isn't God like the foundation of truth? No. See, foundations support truth. God is truth. God is truth. Remember, Jesus, I am the way, the truth. He is the truth. So what this passage of Scripture is saying is that the church of the living God is the pillar, the support, the foundation of the truth in the world in which we reside. So when our world is struggling to find it or denying that it exists, it should find it in us. We aren't the truth, but we support the truth. We hold it up. What does it mean to be the pillar and foundation of truth? Well, the word pillar actually paints a pretty powerful picture of our responsibility as it relates to the truth. Uh, The Greek word that Paul uses here is the same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the story of Samson's ultimate victory over the Philistines. You you guys remember Samson, right? He was like the, the big, strong, hulking guy. He was a judge. God raised him up to stabilize and protect the the Israelites while they were living in the promised land. And even though God had literally, he was the first superhero, God had given him superpowers, he had an on-again, off-again relationship with God because Samson had this incredible urge to use his superpowers for his own glory, not for God's glory. But so long as Samson, God, God in his grace and mercy just kind of let that ride... As long as he obeyed God and never cut his hair, he would be this Hulk-like man with unlimited strength to fight the Lord's enemies, the Philistines. But you guys know about Samson, right? He had a weakness for the ladies. Y'all know that? Unfortunately for Samson, he fell for one who was more committed to the Philistines than she was to Samson. And so she nagged him on and on the story. She'd always want to know, what's the secret to your strength? What's the secret to your strength? And finally, he just got so sick of it that he told her. It was supposed to be a secret between him and God, but he told her. And after he spilled the beans, she actually had a group of warrior barbers come in while he was asleep, tie him up, and shave his head. You know what happened when his hair fell off? The Spirit of the Lord left him. And he became a man of average strength. And the Philistines poked his eyes out. And they took him captive. And then they planned this huge party where all the dignitaries in their community would come together. They were going to gather at the temple of Dagon where they would celebrate the fact that Dagon, their god, was more powerful than Jehovah, Samson's god. Why? Because that's what the battles were about. They were fighting to see whose god was most powerful. And since they had God's most powerful man, no strength, no eyes, tied up and held captive, They were celebrating a victory. So they congregated at the temple. They brought Samson out. They had him do tricks like he was an animal. And when they grew tired of that, they actually put him on display, tying him to the pillars of the very temple they were celebrating in. 
the temple of Dagon. And the scripture says that there were 3,000 men and women on the roof of that temple. And this is what happened. Judges chapter 16, beginning in verse 28. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me? Please, God, strengthen me just once more. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars, same word, same word that says what we are, reached to the central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Now, let's make the connection. We, the church, are the pillar. We support the truth in our society. For our society. We prop up and promote God for those around us. That's the job. And just as those two pillars supported the entire temple in which those pagans were partying, so we support the mission that Jesus came, lived, and died for. Now what happened when Samson displaced those pillars? The temple crashed. Came tumbling down. See, when pillars don't do their jobs, whatever it is they are supporting plummets from its perch. It falls. And when the pillars of truth are deficient, derelict, or they just don't show up, God falls from his lofty, rightful perch as the truth that sets men free. You say, well, I don't know about all that. Like God could fall because of it? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that it isn't that he's no longer the truth that sets men free. It's just that men can't find him. Because we're not doing our jobs. When men can't find him, it's because those of us who know him aren't lifting him up to the place of supremacy. We're not functioning as the pillars of the body of Christ. And so what I, I want you to understand that Paul is saying to Timothy here and the leaders in Ephesus is that God's household serves as the pillar of truth. We are not the truth, but we are called to lift up the truth so people can find it. That's the mission. We have to be here. We have to be assembled together. 
to do our part. Why is that? Well, it's because of what we need to do. Paul says that it all boils down to our conduct. We are to conduct ourselves as a peaceful assembly that represents Christ. That does what Christ would do if he were in our place. When we assemble and serve together, we are the pillar of truth. You remember the passage of scripture that JP read earlier today? Look at Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. Let us, together, the called out ones, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. That that speaks to us clinging to the ones those things that we must believe, those things that we cannot let go of, we hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, not abandoning the assembly, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. There is some urgency. The darkness is encroaching. It is getting darker and darker, and there is work that we must do. We are called out of darkness and into the light to let our light shine. So we hold unswervingly to the hope, the ones, through commitment. Through commitment. Commitment to the assembled. How? We go to small groups go to connection groups where we study the scripture and we discover God's truth and then we decide together that that we're not going to abandon this truth we have small groups at nine o'clock we have them at 10 45 during this service we have them on Wednesday nights as a matter of fact this Wednesday night at 6 30 I'm starting a study on the fruit of the spirit we're going to teach about the fruit of the spirit and then we're going to break into small groups where we're going to share together so that we're all empowered to hold unswervingly to the hope that we have in Christ if we're going to grow into our role, the role that God has called us to, it requires assembling together. In assembly, the hope that we profess is strengthened. And then he also says, let us spur one another on to love and good deeds. When we think critically about spurring each other on to love and good deeds, we do that by showing up and serving the mission of the church. From children's ministry to hospitality, to worship, to giving, it all encourages and enables all of us to be the pillar of truth. We can't do this in isolation. We do it together. And so he says, let us refuse to give up meeting together. What we are called to do is too critical to give up. It is too critical to go selfish and think I can do this alone. 
We can't be the assembly, the called out ones, if we refuse to assemble. We can't. Jesus said, I will build my church. And he went on to teach through the rest of Scripture that we're supposed to join him. We are called to be the pillar of truth. But we can't be afraid of commitment. We need to commit to Christ, who is the truth. Listen, if you're here and all this talk about church is making you dizzy, let, let me tell you about what the church is for. It is for teaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And here's the good news. He stepped out of eternity and into time he lived a perfect life, died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins so we could be forgiven. Then he was buried in a tomb. Three days later, he was raised from the dead to conquer the grave so we could have life meaning and purpose so we could be a part of his household, the church. So all this begins with a commitment to Christ. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, don't miss this opportunity. If the Holy Spirit is drawing you, we, we've been holding up the truth today. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. So if he's drawing you to himself today, just let go. Follow trust your life will never be the same you'll be forgiven you'll be connected with our creator and you'll be a part of the church Christ came to build so we commit to Christ and then to do our part we commit to each other to the body of believers we commit to be a part of the pillar that's going to hold up the truth. We commit to believing the ones. We begin, maybe you need to begin that commitment demonstrated by being baptized where we celebrate what Christ has done for all of us. Maybe it is coming to faith in Christ. Maybe for you it is, hey, I'm going to show up on November the 8th and be a part of the Discovering Skycrest class because I know now that I need to be a part of a body of believers so I can reach my full potential in Christ and do my part. We commit to each other because Christ committed to us. Do you have commitment phobia? Or are you ready to join the movement that's going to restore hope in the world that God called us to serve? Let's bow our heads and pray. If, if you're here and you've never committed your life to Christ, let this be the day as the Holy Spirit draws you to the truth that you believe, you believe the good news that Jesus came to seek and save you to invite you to be a child of God. And it's, it really is just a matter of faith. Christ did all the work. When he died on the cross, he said it's finished. 
place your faith in him and you'll be connected with the Father and enjoy the purpose for which you were created. Father, I, I pray if there are any in this room or any watching online today that don't know you, that they would follow the leadership of your spirit and become a part of the household of faith. And Lord, for those of us who know you, who have committed our hearts to you, I pray, Lord, that the rest of us would follow, that we would be committed to your cause, the church, so that the light of truth will shine in the darkness. It's in the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.